I was raised on a small farm in northern Utah. We were blessed to have enough land, not enough to make a living, but enough to make work for a young boy. My parents were good, hard-working, industrious people. In order to make ends meet, my father took outside employment. Each morning before he left for work, he would make a list of chores he wanted me to accomplish before he came home that evening. I remember on one occasion one of the items on the list was to take a small broken part from our hayrake to the blacksmith shop to have it repaired. I was uncomfortable about going. My father hadn't left any money, and I wondered what I should do. I put off going as long as I could. When all my other chores were finished, I knew I couldn't avoid it any longer. Father expected the broken part to be repaired when he came home, and it was my responsibility to see that it was done. I can still remember walking the mile or so to the blacksmith shop. I even remember how uncomfortable I was as I watched him weld the part. As he finished, I nervously told him that I had no money, but that my father would pay him later. I'm sure he sensed my anxiety. He patted me on the shoulder and said, Son, don't worry. Your father's word is as good as his bond. I remember running all the way home, relieved that the part had been repaired, and grateful that my father was known as a man whose word was as good as his bond. As a boy, I didn't fully understand what that meant, but I knew it was good and something to be desired. It was years later that I recognized that a person whose word is as good as his bond is a person of honesty and integrity, a person to be trusted. In today's world, there are some who think nothing of breaking their word, their promises, their covenants with man and with God. What a blessing it is to deal with those whom we can trust. A powerful example of this can be found in the Book of Mormon. You'll remember the assignment given to Nephi and his brothers by their father Lehi to go to Jerusalem to obtain the plates of brass from Laban. After an unsuccessful attempt, the brothers desired to return to their father in the wilderness. Nephi recognized that they had a task to perform, an assignment to fulfill. He stated, We will not go down unto our father in the wilderness until we have accomplished the thing which the Lord hath commanded us. They tried again, and again they failed. Nephi then crept into the city and went forth towards the house of Laban. It was there that he found Laban drunken with wine and obeyed the voice of the Spirit, which said to him, Slay him, for the Lord hath delivered him into thine hands. It is better that one man should perish than that a nation should dwindle and perish in unbelief. Then, putting on the clothes of Laban, he went to the treasury and obtained the plates. Nephi had accomplished that which he had been sent to do. But we must not overlook the powerful example of Laban's servant, Zoram. Nephi commanded Zoram to follow him as he left the treasury. And it was only when he called to his brothers that Zoram realized that it was Nephi and not Laban whom he had followed. The scriptures tell us that Zoram began to tremble and was about to flee 
when Nephi seized him and told him he need not fear, that he should be a free man if he would go down into the wilderness with them, Zoram promised that he would. He gave his word, and Nephi said that when Zoram had made an oath unto us, our, seers, our fears did cease concerning him. He was a man to be trusted. His oath was binding. His word was as good as his bond. Honesty and integrity are not old-fashioned principles. They are just as viable in today's world. We have been taught in the Church that when we say we will do something, we do it. When we make a commitment, we honor it. When we are given a calling, we fulfill it. When we borrow something, we return it. When we have a financial obligation, we pay it. When we enter into an agreement, we keep it. President N. Eldon Tanner related the following experience. A young man came to me not long ago and said, I made an agreement with a man that requires me to make certain payments each year. I am in arrears, and I can't make those payments. For if I do, it is going to cause me to lose my home. What shall I do? I looked at him and said, Keep your agreement. Even if it costs me my home, I said, I'm not talking about your home. I'm talking about your agreement, and I think your wife would rather have a husband who would keep his word, meet his obligations, keep his pledges or his covenants, and have to rent a home than to have a home with a husband who will not keep his covenants and his pledges." End quote. We are all familiar with the statement, Honesty is the best policy. For members of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, Honesty is the only policy. We must be honest with our fellow men. We must be honest with our God. We are honest with God when we honor the covenants we make with Him. We are a covenant-making people. We make covenants at the waters of baptism. We renew those covenants each week as we worthily partake of the sacrament. We take upon ourselves the name of Christ. We promise to always remember Him and to keep His commandments. And in return, He promises us that His Spirit will always be with us. We make covenants as we enter into the temple, and in return, we receive the promised blessings of eternal life if we keep those sacred covenants. Covenants with God are not to be taken lightly. In the Doctrine and Covenants, the Lord tells us, that I will prove you in all things, whether you will abide in my covenant, even unto death, that you may be found worthy. The account of the anti-Nephi-Lehi's in the Book of Mormon is a touching example of this. Ammon and his brethren spent fourteen years preaching to the Lamanite people. Thousands were brought to the knowledge of the truth, and those who were converted unto the Lord never did fall away, for they were perfectly upright and honest in all things, and they were firm in the faith of Christ even unto the end. They were so grateful for the mercy of God that they covenanted with Him that rather than shed the blood of their brethren, they would give up their own lives. You will remember that they buried their weapons of war in the ground. They were so true to that covenant 
that even when the armies of the Lamanites came upon them, they went out to meet them and prostrated themselves before them to the earth and began to call on the name of the Lord. They offered no resistance. Many were slain. These people were willing to die rather than break the covenant that they had made with the Lord. In our dealings with both God and our fellow man, let us be examples of honesty and integrity. Elder Joseph B. Worthland tells us, The rewards of integrity are immeasurable. One is the indescribable inner peace that comes from knowing we are doing what is right. Another is an absence of the guilt and anxiety that accompanies sin. Another reward of integrity is the confidence it can give us in approaching God. The consummate reward of integrity is the constant companionship of the Holy Ghost. Let us live true to the trust the Lord has placed in us." End quote. It is my prayer that we may honor the commitments and covenants that we make with God and with our fellow man, that it can be said of each of us, our word is as good as our bond. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. What a tremendous sight, my brethren. It's thrilling to stand here and look out on this vast audience in the tabernacle and then think of what is happening <clears throat> throughout the world. These, these songs that we have just heard, I think, are quite appropriate. Where can I find peace? We can talk about that all evening, can't we? But before that, that stirring song, Let the Mountains Shout for Joy. And as we reflect upon this being the sesquicentennial year of our pioneer celebrations, you can imagine the, the thrill that the saints must have felt to sing that song or to have heard it even for the first time, written by Evan Stevens, Let the Mountains Shout for Joy after they had made the trip and made the trek across the plains and have done all of the things that they had done, the suffering and the living in the wagon beds and sleeping out in the ground and walking barefooted and burying the dead out in the prairies, all of those things, and finally to arrive and into the valley of the Great Salt Lake, there to establish Zion. You can imagine the how they would sing, let the mountains shout for joy, let the valleys sing, and how we could do that now as we reflect upon our ancestors who were part of that trek and all that they have done in making the way for us and then to envision where the Church is today. As we heard the statistics read today and just reflecting upon what is happening throughout the world, regarding the image of the Church, the growth, the continued growth, and the continued expansion of the stakes and the wards and the membership worldwide and into new countries, new areas constantly with that growth going on. And you can imagine, again, we could back up and sing with great enthusiasm, let the mountains shout for joy, because here we are in the word and the word is spreading the way it had been predicted and the way it would, should be done. 
I'm honored to have been able to be on the to be on the program here tonight. I'm getting old enough now that I just about span the 20th century. I'm missing six years at the beginning of the century. I was born in 1906, and I have three years on the other end, which would cover the hundred years. And so the other day, and President Hinckley was caught talking about a dedication coming up in the year 2000. He said to me, and I'm planning on your being there. And I said, I'll plan on being there. <laughs> so if I can make that date and keep that one, then that would close the three on the upper end, and I'm only short the six at the beginning. And so, <laughs> so that would give me a, a 96% of the 100 years of the 20th century. Now, as I reflect upon the 20th century and what I have learned and what I have seen, what I have felt and what I have experienced, I thought this evening I would like to say something to the Aaronic priesthood particularly about what I have seen and what I have witnessed and what I have felt during that time. I would remind all of you that in the year 1906, the population of the church was about 360,000 people in 1906, the year I was born. There were 55 stakes. There were 22 missions. There were some 1,500 missionaries, as far as I've been able to calculate, which would mean about 70 missions missionaries per mission in 22 missions. But the move, the move, the work was moving forward. That was the year that I came into existence. The story was told by my mother that on the morning that I was born, it was on a Sunday, my father was quite proud. He was the bishop of the Oakley First Ward in Oakley, Idaho. And he went outside to announce to one of our friends, Brother Peterson, who was walking by, my father asked him to come in and see the, the new son that was just born. My mother said I was the homeliest little child she had ever seen. <laughs> I was undernourished, wrinkled, didn't have any hair, bald-headed, wrinkled. And so Brother Peterson, after looking at me, said, Sister Haight, do you think he's worth bothering with? <laughs> well... That was my entrance in 1906. And now, since that, from that time, I've seen the automobiles come along. I've seen the airplanes come into being. I've seen radio, the little crystal with a cat whisker the little beginning of the electronics world. I remember that when we would sit in the Idaho Power Company at night with a little radio and we would scratch with that cat, with that little whisker, and we would get some terrible static, and we thought we were were tuned into China because we couldn't understand what was going on. (laughs) And so I've seen these things take place. The electronics world come along, the automobile, the airplane, And as as I would back up and think of the world that I knew when I was young, the basics that we talk about were in place then. 
And with all of the things that I've seen happen out in the world since I've lived upon the earth, nothing has changed to change the, the original basics. We, we now have the, the great uh, ability to communicate as rapidly as we do and in the various ways that we do. We can f- travel faster through the air and in automobiles and so on. But the basics, the eternal values haven't changed a bit from the original. And so those of you who are young today, and I'm thinking of the deacons who are assembled in the meetings throughout the world, I remember when I was ordained a deacon by Bishop Adams. He, had took, he took the place of my father when he died. My father baptized me, but he didn't see me, wasn't there when I received the Aaronic priesthood. But I remember the thrill that I had when I was, became a deacon and now held the priesthood. And now, and as they would explain to me in that simple way, in that simple language, to receive the power to help in the organization and the moving forward of the Lord's program upon the earth. But we, but we receive that as a 12-year-old boy. And as we go through those early ranks of the lesser priesthood, as a deacon and a teacher and then a priest, going through those ranks, learning, learning, little by little, and here a little and there a little, growing in knowledge and wisdom, and that little testimony that we start out with, the way it starts to grow, and you see it magnifying, and you're seeing it building in a way that, that is understandable to you, but you can feel the magnitude of it as you start to grow up and prepare for the manhood. And speaking of preparing for manhood, I remember when I was 12 years old and I was the head man around the house, I was a man by the time I was 12 because my mother expected that of me. And I, would ex- and I knew that uh, she would be expecting that from me. She was not looked upon as a single, as a, uh, as, as a, uh, a, a widow, but, but as my mother. She was my mother and the, uh, to raise and to teach and to train and to help us to Prepare for, prepare for life. And so I would say to the boys in, in the Aaronic Priesthood and the deacons and all of you today, the simple, simple basics that we learn from the beginning, that we're taught in the scriptures, that we're taught starting with Adam, the, the, the basics were upon the earth from the beginning. And with the development of mankind and the speed of automobiles or airplanes or or communications, all of those things do not change the basics at all because they're they're in place. And so we have to start to be prepared as we move on through life and learning uh, uh, to do the things that uh, are essential for us to... to, uh, advance in the priesthood or advance in, in positions in society or however it, whatever it might be, but we have to learn to do the simple basic rules. As the First Presidency came in tonight, one of them said, we'll knock a home run, and, and someone else said, we'll kick a field goal. That, that remind, reminded me that a few years ago, I told a, a, a meeting such as this, 
of a football story that I was involved in when, when the school board out in Oakley, Idaho was able to raise enough money to buy 12 football outfits. Uh, they, uh, we hadn't played football. We'd played basketball because that was easy to do and was cheap. It wouldn't require much equipment. But they finally were able to buy 12 uniforms so we could, we'd have a full team and one substitute. Our, our coach was a chemistry teacher, and he had seen a team one time, or had seen a game. <laughs> and so he, he taught us how to tackle and run up and down the field and, and run a few simple plays, but, but we had never seen an actual team take place. So our first game was to play Twin Falls, Idaho, who the year before had been the ch- state high school champs. So we got in the little Ford cars and went down to Twin Falls, Idaho. We got in our uniforms and in our suits, out on the field, all 12 of us. And after we had run around a little and loosening up, the band started to play and in came the football team. They had more in their band than we had in the whole high school. (laughs) But as the team came in, in their big Green Bay Packer outfits. We were amazed. There were 39 of them came in in full uniform. Well, you can imagine the game was interesting. <laughs> they kicked off to us, and well, we tried a couple of plays and it didn't go anywhere, and so we kicked it to get rid of the ball. <laughs> and, it, and, and so each time we would get the ball, we would kick, and each time they would get a hold of the ball, they would score. <laughs> it was an interesting afternoon. Near the end of the game, we now were, were battered and bloody and beaten. And uh, they were get, started to get a little reckless. And Clifford Lee, who was playing halfback with me, uh, had to pass one of their wild passes, land right in his arms. And he looked and wondered which way to run or what to do with it. But he saw them coming after him, and he started to run. He was not running for points. He was running for his life. <laughs> So he ran through and, and scored a touchdown. Well, the final score was 106 to 6. <laughs> but the Twin Falls paper, just a, two or three years ago, had an article about their great football teams. And they listed that game against Oakley. And, but the score they published in the paper was 106 to 7. And I wrote the editor of the Twin Falls paper and I said, Dear editor, I thought you would like to hear from someone who played on the other side. So I described the game to him, and and I said, and we didn't we we didn't try an extra point because we didn't have anyone who could have kicked the extra point. (laughs) And the score, you should correct it in your records because it was 106 to six. Well, that is part of the life and the opportunity we have to be prepared. And when there's something to be done and something, and the things that we have to learn in order to accomplish it, then we have to learn the facts and how to carry them out. The gospel is true. And it's, as I look at this chorus back here of the, of the, uh, from Rick's, this chorus tonight, and think of the missionary force we have out in the world and the great opportunity have we have my what a great 
chance and opportunity now to carry out the Lord's work in a way that it must be done throughout the world. We love you for what you're doing, and you boys in the Aaronic Priesthood, prepare to be good and to be as good as you ought to be and learn to be clean and honest and pure and forthright and obedient and to be obedient above all things that you might be able to carry out the Lord's work in the majestic way in which it must be done. I leave you my love, my witness, my testimony that this work is true, that President Hinckley, who leads the Church today as our prophet, seer, and revelator, is called by the Lord to preside over the Church. I have watched him closely now for more than 20 years in watching his ability and his talent and his dedication and the spiritual impact that he brings to the world as he leads the, this work throughout the, throughout the world. It's true. It'll move forward to move all and move every, fill every corner of the earth. Give when people will have an opportunity to hear with their own ears and to hear someone declare that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, of which I declare to you and leave you my love, my witness, that this work is true. In the name of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, Amen. There are some lines attributed to Victor Hugo which read, She broke the bread into two fragments and gave them to her children, who ate with eagerness. She hath kept none for herself, grumbled the sergeant. Because she's not hungry, said a soldier. No, said the sergeant, because she is a mother. In a year when we are celebrating the faith and valor, of those who made that exacting trek across Iowa, Nebraska, and Wyoming, I wish to pay tribute to the modern counterparts of those pioneer mothers who watched after, prayed for, and far too often buried their babies on that trail. To the women within the sound of my voice who dearly want to be mothers and are not, I say through your tears and ours on that subject, God will yet, in days that lie somewhere ahead, bring hope to the desolate heart. As prophets have repeatedly taught from this pulpit, ultimately no blessing will be withheld from the faithful, even if those blessings do not come immediately. In the meantime, we rejoice that the call to nurture is not limited to our own flesh and blood. In speaking of mothers, I do not neglect the crucial urgent role of fathers, particularly as fatherlessness in contemporary homes is considered by some to be the central social problem of our time. Indeed, fatherlessness can be a problem even in a home where the father is present, eating and sleeping, so to speak, by remote. But that is a priesthood message for another day. Today I wish to praise those motherly hands that have rocked the infant's cradle and through the righteousness taught to their children there, are at the very center of the Lord's purposes for us in mortality. In so speaking, I echo Paul, who wrote in praise of Timothy's unfeigned faith, which dwelt first, he said, in thy grandmother Lois and in thy mother Eunice. From the days when thou wert a child, Paul said, 
thou hast known the Holy Scriptures. We give thanks for all the mothers and grandmothers from whom such truths have been learned at such early ages. In speaking of mothers generally, I especially wish to praise and encourage young mothers. The work of a mother is hard, too often unheralded work. The young years are often those when either husband or wife or both may still be in school or in those earliest and leanest stages of developing the husband's breadwinning capacities. Finances fluctuate daily between low and non-existent. <laughs> the apartment is usually decorated in one of two smart designs, Deseret Industries Provincial or Early Mother Hubbard. The car, if there is one, runs on smooth tires and an empty tank. But with night feedings and night teethings, often the greatest challenge of all for a young mother is simply fatigue. Through these years, mothers go longer on less sleep and give more to others with less personal renewal for themselves than any other group I know at any other time in life. It is not surprising when the shadows under their eyes sometimes vaguely resemble the state of Rhode Island. Of course, the irony is that this is often the sister we want to call or need to call to service in the warden stake auxiliaries. That's understandable. Who wouldn't want the exemplary influence of these young Loises and Eunices in the making? Everyone be wise. Remember that families are the highest priority of all, especially in those formative years. Even so, young mothers will still find magnificent ways to serve faithfully in the Church, even as others serve and strengthen them and their families in like manner. Do the best you can through these years, but whatever else you do, cherish that role that is so uniquely yours and for which heaven itself sends angels to watch over you and your little ones. Husbands, especially husbands, as well as Church leaders and friends in every direction, be helpful and sensitive and wise. Remember, to everything there is a season and a time to every purpose under heaven. Mothers, we acknowledge and esteem your faith in every footstep. Please know that it is worth it then, now, and forever. And if for whatever reason you are making this courageous effort alone without your husband at your side, then our prayers will be all the greater for you and our determination to lend a helping hand even more resolute. One young mother wrote me, to me recently that her anxiety tended to come on three fronts. One was that whenever she heard talks on LDS motherhood, she worried because she felt she didn't measure up or somehow wasn't going to be able to be equal to the task. Secondly, she felt like the world expected her to teach her children reading, writing, interior design, Latin, calculus, and the Internet all before the baby said something terribly ordinary, like goo goo. <laughs> Thirdly, she often felt people were sometimes patronizing, almost always without meaning to be, because the advice she got or even the compliments she received seemed to reflect nothing of the mental investment, the spiritual and emotional exertion, the long night, long day stretched to the limit demands that sometimes are required in trying to be and wanting to be 
the mother God hopes she will be. But one thing she said keeps her going. I quote, Through the thick and the thin of this, and through the occasional tears of it all, I know deep down inside I am doing God's work. I know that my motherhood is an eternal partnership with Him. I am deeply moved, she said, that God finds His ultimate purpose and meaning in being a parent, even if some of His children make Him weep. It is this realization, she says, that I try to recall on those inevitably difficult days when all of this can be a bit overwhelming. Maybe it is precisely our inability and anxiousness that urge us to reach out to Him and enhance His ability to reach back to us. Maybe He secretly hopes we will be anxious, she said, and will plead for His help. Then, I believe, He can teach these children directly, through us, but with no resistance offered. I like that idea, she concludes. It gives me hope. If I can be right before my Father in heaven, perhaps His guidance to our children can be absolutely unimpeded. Maybe then it can be His work and His glory in a very literal sense." Close quote. In light of that kind of expression, it is clear that some of those Rhode Island-sized shadows come not just from diapers and carpooling, but from at least a few sleepless nights spent searching the soul, seeking earnestly for the capacity to raise these children to be what God wants them to be. Moved by that kind of devotion and determination, may I say to mothers collectively, in the name of the Lord, you are magnificent. You are doing terrifically well. The very fact that you've been given such responsibility is everlasting evidence of the trust your Father in Heaven has in you. He knows that your giving birth to a child does not immediately propel you into the circle of the omniscient. If you and your husband will strive to love God and live the gospel yourselves, if you'll plead for that guidance and comfort of the Holy Spirit promised to the faithful, if you'll go to the temple to both make and claim the promises of the most sacred covenants a woman or man can make in this world, if you'll show others, including your children, the same caring, compassionate, forgiving heart you want heaven to show you, if you try your best to be the best parent you can be, you will have done all that a human being can do and all that God expects you to do. Sometimes the decision of a child or a grandchild will break your heart. Sometimes expectations won't immediately be met. Every mother and father worries about that. Even that beloved and wonderfully successful parent, President Joseph F. Smith, pled, Oh God, let me not lose my own. That is every parent's cry. And in, in it is something of every parent's fear. 
But no one has failed who keeps trying and keeps praying. You have every right to receive encouragement and to know in the end your children will call your name blessed. Just like those generations of foremothers before you who hoped your same hopes and felt your same fears. Yours is the grand tradition of Eve, the mother of all the human family, the one who understood that she and Adam had to fall in order that men and women might be and that there would be joy. Yours is the grand tradition of Sarah and Rebecca and Rachel, without whom there could not have been those magnificent patriarchal promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, which bless us all. Yours is the grand tradition of Lois and Eunice and the mothers of the 2,000 stripling warriors. Yours is the grand tradition of Mary, chosen and foreordained from before this world was to conceive, carry, and bear the Son of God himself. We thank all of you, including our own mothers, and tell you there is nothing more important in this world than participating so directly in the work and glory of God, in bringing to pass the mortality and earthly life of his daughters and sons, so that immortality and eternal life can come in those celestial realms on high. When you've come to the Lord in meekness and lowliness of heart, and as one mother said, pounded on the doors of heaven to ask for, to plead for, to demand guidance and wisdom and help for this wondrous task, that door is open to you to provide you the influence and the help of all eternity. Claim the promises of the Savior of the world. Ask for the healing balm of the atonement for whatever may be troubling you or your children. Know that in faith things will be made right in spite of you or, more correctly, because of you. You can't possibly do this alone, but you do have help. The master of heaven and earth is there to bless you. He who resolutely goes after the lost sheep, sweeps thoroughly to find the lost coin, waits everlastingly for the return of the prodigal son. Yours is the work of salvation, and therefore you will be magnified, compensated, made more than you are, better than you are, better than you've ever been as you try to make honest effort, however feeble you may sometimes feel that to be. Remember, remember, all the days of your motherhood, ye have not come this far, save it were by the word of Christ, with unshaken faith in him, relying wholly upon the merits of him who is mighty to save. Rely on him. Rely on him heavily. Rely on him forever. And press forward with a steadfastness in Christ, having a perfect brightness of hope. You are doing God's work. You are doing it wonderfully well. He is blessing you and he will bless you. Even, no, especially when your days and your nights may be the most challenging. Like the woman who anonymously 
meekly, perhaps even with hesitation and some embarrassment, fought her way through the crowd just to touch the hem of the Master's garment. So Christ will say to the women who worry and wonder and sometimes weep over their responsibility as mothers, Daughter, be of good cheer. Thy faith hath made thee whole, and it will make your children whole as well. In the sacred and holy name of the Lord Jesus Christ, amen. My dear brothers and sisters, this afternoon I would like to speak about gratitude. First, for a loving family, second, for a living prophet, and third, for the Lord Jesus Christ. Nephi stated that he had been born of goodly parents. I echo his same words, for I, too, was born of goodly parents, a father who was a faithful Latter-day Saint who honored his priesthood, and a loving mother who died when I was a young child, leaving my father with six children. My father remarried a widow with nine children, thus giving me in all five brothers and nine sisters. I am grateful for my second mother who loved me as one of her own and who was an example to me. I thank my Father in Heaven for all of my brothers and sisters who have loved and supported me and who also loved the gospel and the Lord. It has now been 54 years since the Lunt-Taylor family was joined together. And even though our parents are gone, we feel unity and love for each other. I also have felt the love and support of grandparents, uncles and aunts, and other relatives. I am grateful for my loving and devoted wife, Sharon, and our six children, two sons-in-law, and five grandchildren. The psalmist said, Lo, children are a heritage of the Lord. Happy is the man that hath his quiver full of them. I am grateful for this heritage of the Lord and for their love and support. I express gratitude for a living prophet, President Gordon B. Hinckley. Last November, he visited many South America countries, including Chile. That same week, Chile hosted an important summit meeting for all nations of Latin America. There were presidents and dignitaries from 16 different countries. Streets in the areas where they stayed and met were barricaded. Day and night, sirens wailed and red lights flashed to make way for those men as they traveled back and forth from their meetings. In the midst of all the commotion, President Hinckley arrived. There was no fanfare and no special welcome, recognition, or privilege extended to him. Two vans left the airport and maneuvered through the streets of Santiago, one carrying the Lord's living prophet. At the hotel, there were police and guards to protect the summit visitors while President Hinckley, with his family and others, entered unnoticed. My mind went back to a stable many years ago where the birth of the Son of God went unnoticed, except for a few shepherds in the fields watching over their flocks. God's kingdom on earth moves quietly along behind the scenes of more publicized events. The next day, as President Hinckley spoke to over 50,000 saints and testified of Christ and of His Church, one could feel his conviction. He told all present that he wanted them to remember that they had heard Gordon B. Hinckley say that God lives and Jesus is the Christ. 
He counseled the saints to put their lives in order, to teach their children the ways of the Lord, and to form eternal families by being sealed in the temple. At the conclusion of the conference, with tears in their eyes and a testimony in their hearts that here truly was a prophet of God on earth, the vast congregation stood and waved white handkerchiefs in farewell. President Hinckley took his handkerchief from his pocket and with love returned their farewell. I know, as those many saints in Chile and throughout the world know, that President Gordon B. Hinckley is a living prophet of God on earth. I am grateful for him and for his example. I express gratitude and love for Jesus Christ and His Atonement, for His willingness to leave the realms of heaven as a God and come to earth as a lowly babe, born in a stable to Mary and Joseph because there was no room for them in the inn. He lived a life of service, forgetting himself in the cause of his, other, his father's other children. His desire was to fulfill the Father's will, which is to bring to pass the immortality and eternal life of man. In the final hours of his mortal life, he went into the Garden of Gethsemane and took upon himself the sins of all mankind from Adam until the last person born on earth. There he suffered these things for all, that they may not suffer if they would repent. His own words describe that experience. Which suffering caused myself, even God, the greatest of all, to tremble because of pain and to bleed at every pore, and to suffer both body and spirit, and would that I might not drink the bitter cup and shrink. A few hours later he was tried and judged of men, and then crucified on a cross. The great Jehovah, the creator of this world and worlds without number, submitted himself humbly to the desires of evil men and thus accomplished the will of the Father. The resurrected Savior taught the people in the Americas that whoso repenteth and is baptized in my name shall be filled, and if he endureth to the end, behold, him will I hold guiltless before my Father at that day when I shall stand to judge the world. In writing of repentance, President Boyd K. Packer said, In the universal battle for human souls, the adversary takes enormous numbers of prisoners. Many, knowing of no way to escape, are pressed into his service. Every soul confined in a concentration camp of sin and guilt has a key to the gate. The key is labeled repentance. The adversary cannot hold them if they know how to use it. The twin principles of repentance and forgiveness exceed in strength the awesome power of the tempter." Close quote. The Lord said in Isaiah, Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they be red like crimson, they shall be as wool. The Lord has said in our day, Behold, he who has repented of his sins, the same is forgiven, and I, the Lord, remember them no more. By this ye may know, if a man repenteth of his sins, behold, he will confess them and forsake them. Jesus Christ is the judge of all. The keeper of the gate is the Holy One of Israel, and he employeth no servant there, and there is none other way save it be by the gate. I feel he will be disappointed if we are not worthy to live with him and his Father. Brothers and sisters, may we know how to use the key labeled repentance so that 
we may, as we stand before the Savior, listen to Him who is the Advocate with the Father, who is pleading our cause before Him, saying, Father, behold the sufferings and death of Him who did no sin, in whom Thou wast well pleased. Behold the blood of Thy Son, which was shed, the blood of Him whom Thou gavest, that Thyself might be glorified. Wherefore, Father, spare these my brethren that believe on my name, that they may come unto me and have everlasting life. My desire is to be worthy to have this everlasting life with Jesus Christ and our Father, and I pray we will all have this same desire and strive to achieve it. I bear witness that Jesus Christ is the only begotten Son of God, our Lord and Savior. At this special time, as we remember His resurrection, I express my deep gratitude for Him and for His Atonement, and I do so in His name, even Jesus Christ. Amen. During the last few days of the Savior's mortal ministry, He finalized His instruction to His Apostles. They had been with Him during His three-year ministry, but now He completed His teaching that had come line upon line and precept upon precept as rapidly as they had been able to receive it. Knowing the end of His ministry was near, He told them of His impending departure. Yet a little while I am with you. Whither I go, ye cannot come. Fear, frustration, and concern must have gripped these humble disciples. Jesus had been their security, their help, their light. What could they do without His direction, His instruction, His example, His comfort? In love and compassion, the Master assured them, I will not leave you comfortless. I will pray the Father, and He shall give you another Comforter, that He may abide with you forever. Even the Spirit of Truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it seeth him not, neither knoweth him. But ye know him, for he dwelleth with you and shall be in you. He shall teach you all things, and bring all things to your remembrance, whatsoever I have said unto you. To his apostolic friends, and for the benefit of all believers, Jesus added a significant benediction. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give unto you. Not as the world giveth, give I unto you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. The scriptures testify that the promise was fulfilled in the lives of his servants in the meridian of time. We testify that the fulfillment continues in this dispensation of the fullness of times. It should be noted that Jesus promised His peace, not the peace that the world gives. The world cries out for freedom from war, from violence, from oppression, from injustice, from contention, from disease and distress. That the Savior did not expect such worldly peace is clear from His concluding remark as He finished His special teaching to His apostles. These things I have spoken unto you, that in me ye might have peace. In the world ye shall have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. In mortality, tribulation would continue, 
But in the midst of that tribulation, his followers would have peace in him. In other words, even if all the world is crumbling around us, the promised Comforter will provide his peace as a result of true discipleship. Ultimate total peace will come, of course, because he overcame the world. But we can have his peace with us irrespective of the troubles of the world. His peace is that peace, that serenity, that comfort spoken to our hearts and minds by the Comforter, the Holy Ghost, as we strive to follow him and keep his commandments. Learn of me and listen to my words. Walk in the meekness of my spirit, and you shall have peace in me. He who doeth the works of righteousness shall receive his reward, even peace in this world and eternal life in the world to come. Just as Helaman discovered in the midst of battle that he did speak peace to our souls, and Oliver Cowdery had peace spoken to his mind when he cried unto the Lord in his heart that he might know concerning the truth of the Book of Mormon, all sincere seekers can have that same peace spoken to them. That peace comes from the assurances spoken by a still, small voice. The Holy Ghost is a personage of spirit who generally communicates not through physical senses but by touching the heart and mind. In other words, he speaks through thoughts, impressions, and feelings and does so softly. As President Packer has stated, the Spirit does not get our attention by shouting or shaking us with a heavy hand. Rather, it whispers. It caresses so gently that if we are preoccupied, we may not feel it at all. Accordingly, many do not hear the voice. In fact, many do not want to hear the voice. Many men desire to be and are determined to be self-sufficient, rejecting and scoffing at anything which would potentially call into question their own power or ability. The natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness unto him, neither can he know them, because they are spiritually discerned. But although the Spirit is gentle, it speaks with great power. To receive the Spirit, a type of surrender is necessary. A few years before the first advent of Jesus Christ, the Nephite prophets Nephi and Lehi were encircled about as if by fire while confined in prison. Their would-be slayers heard a voice as if it were above a cloud of darkness which had gripped the crowd of unbelievers, calling them to repentance as the earth shook. When they heard this voice and beheld that it was not a voice of thunder, neither was it a voice of a great tumultuous noise, but behold, it was a still voice of perfect mildness, as if it had been a whisper, and it did pierce even to the very soul. And notwithstanding the mildness of the voice, behold, the earth shook exceedingly. They were motivated to repent and have faith in Christ. And behold, the Holy Spirit of God did come down from heaven and did enter into their hearts. And they were filled as if with fire, and they could speak forth marvelous words. And it came to pass that there came a voice unto them, yea, a pleasant voice, as if it were a whisper, saying, Peace.
Peace be unto you. They surrendered, surrendered to a power unseen but capable of penetrating any willing heart. Paul described the fruit of the Spirit, that is, what the Spirit produces. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness. And he observed, against such there is no law. In other words, the Spirit can penetrate anything. No law can be passed which will preclude the Spirit from doing his work with an obedient follower of Christ. The scriptures teach us that the Spirit enlightens the mind, leadeth to do good, to do justly, to walk humbly, to judge righteously, fills the soul with joy, reveals the truth of all things, bears record of Father and Son, knows all things, convinces, gives knowledge, speaks in a still small voice, teaches a man to pray, brings about mighty change, gives assurances, fills with hope and perfect love, gives liberty, comforts, speaks peace, is available. Just as Jesus' anxious apostles were given peace by another comforter, so today can all men and women receive the same marvelous blessing each day of their lives. The teenager challenged by peer pressure, the person torn by seemingly overwhelming passions or emotions, the person encircled about by loneliness and despair, the hungry, the oppressed, the forgotten, the frightened, the abused, the abuser, the liar, the thief, all who will surrender, follow the Master, and do His works are entitled to the same peace. Jesus' invitation is extended to all. Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. I so testify in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen.